0: sources within us in the person of the Holy Spirit, but when we invoke the name of Jesus, all of a sudden the atmosphere in which we find ourselves is dramatically changed, and you are a change agent that God wants to use in a very powerful and a very dramatic way. We're going to be talking about this over the next four weeks, so I'm doing a series within this series on Grip by Grace, and we're going to spend four weeks just talking about your unique purpose. When Paul began the book of Romans, he began by saying I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why is he not ashamed of the gospel? What's the gospel about? Jesus. I'm not ashamed of Jesus because he is the power of God unto salvation. The word salvation is sozo, which means the power to save, the power to heal, and the power to deliver. I believe that God still has the power to save, heal, and deliver. When you bring the name of Jesus into the atmosphere, all of a sudden the atmosphere begins to change. And there's a dramatic difference when I'm praying over somebody and and Satan has got a a lock on their their mindset, a stronghold that is built into their way of thinking. And if we're going to ask God to break that off, then we're going to invoke the name of Jesus because he is the power source. I'm not the power source. You're not the power source. But we do bring the power source into play when we bring with us the name of Christ because there is where the power lies. And Paul knew firsthand about the power of the gospel to change a life. Paul himself was dramatically changed by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul moved from being a murderer to being a missionary because of the power of the gospel. The gospel was so powerful in his life, it changed every aspect. It changed his mindset, his attitude, his demeanor, his purpose, uh, his goals, his identity, Everything was changed because the gospel was applied to his life. Only Jesus can change us, and he has the power to do so, right? That's a good place for an amen. All right, there we go. So your decision, your decision, right, to follow Jesus was a a decision to repent and believe. That's how we become followers of Christ. We repent and we believe, and as a result of that, it is a defining moment in our lives that resets the entire course and direction of our lives. And that's what we're going to talk about when we talk about your unique purpose. Repentance means that I turn from the direction that I was going and I leave my old life and I turn, and I'm now heading to Christ. I'm, I'm, I'm living my new life that I found in Jesus. To believe means I put my hope and my trust in Christ alone for the forgiveness of my sins. And that was the Apostle Paul. Paul talked in uh, Philippians chapter 3 extensively how he was trusting in his own religion, how he was trusting in his own goodness in order to merit God's favor in, in his eyes. And so Paul left all of that, and he came to realize it's not about the tribe that I was born in. It's not about the fact that I'm a Pharisee, that I read my Bible, that I pray, that I do all these religious activities. It is faith alone in Christ alone as the only substitute and source that can provide for the forgiveness of our sins. And as a result of that, peeling off, no longer trusting in good works, no longer trusting in his religious effort... Jesus alone saves him and saves us. And therefore, when he determined to be a follower of Christ, he determined to surrender his heart and his life under the lordship of Jesus. And Romans chapter 10, what does it say? When it, That great verse, let's just turn back there for a moment. It is a verse we read, we've talked about before. But it's a verse that is often turned to when we talk about somebody, about salvation in Christ. Notice very carefully what he says in verse 9 that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is what? Jesus is savior? So he says, Jesus is Lord. What does it mean for Jesus to be Lord? It means that I surrender everything over to him. I give him that blank check. I'm holding nothing back. Jesus is our savior, but he comes as savior and Lord. Nowhere in the New Testament does it say that we're to receive Jesus as our Savior, but we are to surrender under His Lordship. And when we do that, we receive the package deal and we receive Jesus as our Savior. Then if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved for it is with your heart you believe and are justified. It is with your mouth that you confess and that you are are saved. Now, Paul lived in the Roman Empire, and if you were a citizen of the Roman Empire, what was expected of you as a citizen of the empire was to make a statement that Caesar is Lord. That is something you were expected not only to say, but to live by. And what that statement meant, it was your pledge of allegiance. It was your highest statement of alliance and your greatest commitment to Caesar. Your time, your talents, your abilities, everything was to be given over to Caesar. He is Lord, according to the Romans, and according to himself. And so you were in alliance with the Roman Empire, and whatever they ask of you, you are not to say, I'm not doing that, no, that's not a good idea, no, you are to surrender automatically to the lordship of Caesar, then all of a sudden Jesus came along and says, no, 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 no. That Roman Empire, that nation, that is a temporary thing. I'm coming. I am the Lord. I am your creator. I am your sustainer. I am the one who has a kingdom that will never end, that cannot be shaken. And I am the King of kings and the Lord of lords of that kingdom. Therefore, I am the Lord. And as a result of that, his own people crucified him. They considered it blasphemy against God. But nonetheless, Jesus proclaimed his lordship, and he demonstrated his lordship that though they crucified him, and they buried him, and they were thinking, you know, this is it. It's a done deal. Satan thought he had, you know, nixed Jesus, and he was just like off the mat. And Jesus is like, you know what? Is that the best you can do? And so he arose up out of the grave, and he says, I'm still king of kings. I'm still the lord of lords, and therefore my kingdom will rule, and it will reign forever. Now, Who among you are willing to surrender your hearts and lives under my lordship and give me your allegiance and give me your best and follow me wherever it is that I lead you to go? And that's the calling upon the disciples. That was the calling upon the original apostles. And so Romans chapter 12 and verse 1, he says, Now in light of all of God's mercies that we have through Christ, he says, I want you to surrender yourself. I want you to offer your bodies as living sacrifices to me holy and pleasing. This is your acceptable act of worship. And do not be conformed any longer to the ways of this world, to its pattern of thinking, but I want you to be transformed so that you understand what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. In other words, our highest alliance, our greatest allegiance, our deepest devotion is to be to Jesus. Everything falls under Christ. He is to be supreme in our lives. He is the one who is over all. Even Jesus himself said, Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and then all these things that you need, all of these things that got your your panties in a bunch, all of these things you're worried about and filled with anxiety over, I will take care of that. You seek me first and my kingdom and surrender yourself and here's why that is so, so important is because Jesus is still alive. He's still ruling and reigning today, just like he was yesterday. And the power of Christ has not been diminished one iota because we're living in 2022 as opposed to the year that Jesus was crucified. There is power in the name of Jesus that can be brought into every situation. He can still heal the broken hearted. He can still take those whose hearts have been crushed and shattered by the weight of sin and problems and pain and death or whatever might have been shattering you. He can still heal your broken heart. He is close to the brokenhearted. He can heal the brokenhearted. He can enable you to sustain you through that painful valley of the shadow of death. He proclaims freedom to the captives, to those who are under addiction, to those who have strongholds mentally. That are keeping them encapsulated and enslaved to their sin issues. He can release the prisoners from darkness. The evil one has put darkness over the world, he's put darkness over the minds of the unbelieving. But I'm telling you, when you bring Jesus into the situation, the light of Christ can still shine down into heaven and expose the darkness in our hearts and our minds and expose our sin before us. And then the Holy Spirit comes alongside and He he draws us into the relationship with Christ. And when we we received Jesus as our Savior and Lord, and we repented of our sin and put our faith in Christ, all of a sudden, Jesus, like the Apostle Paul, has so dramatically changed our lives, we are never the same anymore. He still does that. He still brings comfort to those who are mourning and replaces it with a garment of praise. And now that we are on Jesus' team, we can no longer afford to be spectators. We must be participants in what he is doing. We're the ones who bring that name. It just doesn't fall out of the sky. Jesus said, of the church, go and make disciples. Go. As you are going, I want you to bring the name of Christ because with the name of Christ comes the power of Christ. I want you to bring that into the situation you find yourself in and just let's see what I can do. That is the good news of the gospel. This is what so fired Paul up. It, was, it is what we ought to fire our lives up because we bring hope and we bring power into any situation that people are facing. And listen, whoever brings the greatest amount of hope brings the greatest amount of influence into a, a person's life. We have the greatest amount of hope. And so there are three fundamental questions that we have to answer in life. And this is um, starting our first Week here in your unique purpose. What are those three fundamental questions? It doesn't matter what religion it is, or even if a person is an atheist, you still have to answer these questions. Who am I? Who am I really? What's my identity? Where do I find my identity? What is my identity rooted in? And the second question is where do I belong? People want security, right? What role am I here to fulfill? I I don't want to feel like I just lived my life and took up space on the planet or did something that was, you know, unfulfilling or really had no lasting impact. What, what, where do I belong and what am I supposed to be doing? It speaks of our significance. And so this is how we're going to unfold this is by looking at your unique shape. It is God's divine design over you. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not that anyone can boast. Right? Salvation came by grace in Christ alone. And he goes on to say, in verse 10 is really what I want to focus on, is that he goes, you know what? For you are created in Christ to do good works that God prepared in advance for you to do. What are the good works that God prepared, watch this, for you to do? Not your neighbor, not the person sitting next to you. What has God Prepared you to do what are the good works, and if you begin to understand how God has uniquely shaped you, then you begin to understand God's divine design over you that enables you now to understand what it is God wants to do through you. Because God has a purpose in your life, you are a unique individual fitted into the kingdom of God, and you are fitted into that kingdom for such a time as this. It's no accident you're sitting here 2022. This is your time. This is your day. As long as you're still drawing breath, God is not finished with you. God still has a divine and unique purpose for you. So let's unpack that over the next four weeks. What does that look like? Who am I? Now, you've got homework, okay? This is why I gave you this sheet. If you didn't pick up a bulletin, uh, there's some in the bulletins out there. There's extras out in there. I want you to bring this with you each and every week. We're going to talk about your unique shape. Uh, what is your shape? Again, your spiritual gifts. We'll talk about what those are. Your heart, your passion. What are you passionate about? Your abilities. What, did God, what are the God-given abilities God has given to you? Or maybe abilities that you have, you have developed over the course of your life. You have a personality. You have experiences. We're going to be looking at all of that. I want you to fill this out because, watch this, I want you to turn this in. I want to be able to look at it. Listen, if we're going to understand what it is, our God, what God wants to do in and through our church where we presently are now, it will be determined by what God has gifted his people to do. We'll find our sweet spot as to what it is God has for us as a body of believers for our next step. Even a church has a next step. What are those next steps? Well, we need to understand how God has formulated this body of Christ as it is presently so we begin to understand where God wants to go in the future. So let's start with the first question because God answers all three of these in Romans chapter 12. Pick it up in verse 3. For by grace, the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought to, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ, we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace that is given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it is serving, let him serve. If it is teaching, let him teach. If it is encouraging, let him encourage. If it is contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it is leadership, let him govern diligently. If it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. So let's look in verse 3 because it answers the question, who are you? Let me just make this statement. Discovering who you are will help you understand where you belong and once you understand where you belong, then you are understanding what you're supposed to do. Our identity. He says, I want you to think about yourself. Do not think of yourself more highly, but rather think of yourself in a sober ju- with sober judgment. He's talking about our identity. Where do we find our identity? Well, there are a lot of places people go to find their identity. Well, my identity is rooted in my job, or my identity is rooted in my uh, economic level, in life, or my identity is rooted in uh, the hobbies that I love. There are a thousand different ways that we can root our identity into something. The problem is that's really not your identity. You're just telling me what you do. For example, if I said name your favorite basketball player, professional basketball player, actor, or actress, and uh, your favorite, uh, you know, golfer or whatever it might be, you you name those individuals. And you know that they are, you know, they're highly skilled in an area of their life, but that's not their identity. You know, Michael Jordan, one of the greatest basketball players ever, he was a basketball player, but that's not his identity. That's just what he did. And so um, God does not want us rooting our identity in the kind of car that we drive or the activities that we engage in. Your identity as a follower of Jesus is rooted always in Christ. That's why I gave you. 30 days of gratitude every day, focusing on who you are in Christ. This is your identity. Your identity never changes. You see, Michael Jordan played basketball for a long time, made a lot of money, but he doesn't play professional basketball anymore. So if his identity was rooted in that, guess what? See, guys, if we root our identity in our jobs, what happens when you retire and you're no longer needed in that function any longer? Now, all of a sudden, it just wrecks us because we have rooted our identity in what we do. Our identity is to be rooted in Christ, our relationship with him. God has implanted within us a nature that is changed in the depth of the core of our being. So that's why the Bible says, therefore, anyone who is in Christ has become a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. God doesn't want you to root your identity in your past sin, in your past pain, in your past uh, mistakes. He wants your identity rooted in Christ. Romans 6.11 told us, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. That count is a term, an accounting term. In other words, let's add it all up. Let's add up what we've become in Christ. And there's 30 days. You can add all of that up. And so Paul has reminded us, in light of God's extensive mercies, that is adding it all up because this is the way we used to be, but now all of a sudden we... We are some a new creation in Christ. Remember Romans 6, he says, you are so identified with Jesus because you're in Christ and he's in you that when Jesus died, you died. When he was buried, you were buried. When he arose, you arose. You did not arise to the old way of life or to the old man or the old nature. You arose to a new life in Christ that is supernatural Because Jesus has changed you forever. He forgave your sins past, present, and future. He enveloped you in Christ. He has justified you as though you've never sinned. He clothed you in the righteousness of Christ so that when God sees you, he does not see your sin. He sees only the righteousness of Jesus in you. And therefore, you are no longer a sinner. You are a saint, son, and daughter of the living God. I hear people say all the time, well, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. That devalues the radically new life God's given you. I hear people say, well, I'm just an addict or I'm just an alcoholic. I went to an AA meeting in Wales, of all places, Wales. And um, it was the very first AA meeting i would ever been to. And, of course, every you know how AA meetings are. And I love AA, this tremendous organization helping people who are alcoholics. But how do they always start up? My name is Greg. I'm an alcoholic. Why would I want to carry that identity? You see, my identity is rooted in Christ. I may struggle with alcoholism. I may struggle with some addiction. That's what I struggle with, but that's not who I am. I am new in Christ. And once you begin to transform your thought processes into who you are in Christ, then all of a sudden the power of the Holy Spirit gets released inside of you that enables you to take care of those things you struggle with that you do. It's not the other way around. And so if you define who you are by what you do, you're starting with the problem instead of the perspective that you are a blood-bought, totally purchased, absolutely forgiven child of the living God who has a problem in some area perhaps, but that doesn't mean you have changed your identity. You're still in Christ. And so we have the mind of Christ. So what Paul says simply is this, and this is a fill in on your outline. He wants you to consider, or the command is to think accurately about yourself. Think accurately about it. So Don't think too highly of yourself. Don't think too lowly of yourself especially when it comes to your shape, all right? We're going to be talking about ministry and giftings and uh, what God wants to do in, through you. Here's how people, some people are like, well, you know, when I got saved, I, I'm, I'm like, I'm gifted to the wazoo. God got a peach of a guy here, right? So, you know, I'm just, I'm just it, man. God God got a deal here. And God's saying, well, let's read Romans 1 through 11. I don't think I got quite the deal you think I got, Right? So, but then there are other people who say they think too lowly of themselves. Well, pastor, you don't understand. I don't have any gifts. I don't have any abilities. I, I've, I've, you know, I've sinned way too much in the past. God can't use little old me. And that is a false sense of humility. God can and will use you if you will surrender yourself over to him. God has equipped you. He's gifted you. He's given you a unique shape that is unique to you. He's not asking you to be somebody you're not. He's asking you to be you. All right? So don't come with this false, well, God can't. That is absolutely not true, and that is a lie of the evil one. And so our minds, in our minds, we're thinking, well, but I'm just not smart enough. I'm not good enough. I'm not pretty enough. I'm not handsome enough. You know I. So Paul says, listen, here's the contrast. Don't don't think too highly of yourself. Don't think too lowly of yourself. Remember what happened to Moses? Moses, you know, he grew up in in Egypt. And, you know, then he gets kicked out on the backside of a desert because he kills an Egyptian. And uh, he's out there for 40 years watching his father-in-law's sheep. And during that time, he sees this burning bush that's not being consumed. And God issues a call upon his life. He says, Moses... I've raised you up for such a time as this. I want you to go into Egypt and I want you to tell Pharaoh, let my people go. How did Moses respond? Too highly or too lowly? Too lowly, right? He says, in essence, Lord, you cannot use me and let me give you the reasons why. All right, what was his first excuse? I, I just kind of paraphrase it like this God, I'm a nobody. You can't use a nobody. You know what God said? I know you're a nobody, but I'm a somebody, and a somebody can make a nobody something he needs him to be. I'm still sending you to Egypt. To which Moses responds as well, you don't understand, God. I'm not smart enough. You know how God answered him? He says, I've got the answers. I'm not asking you to be smart enough. I'm smart enough, and I'm telling you, I'll tell you what to say. I will declare what you need to do in order to get my people free. And the third excuse was, well, I'm not credible. I don't have the credentials. I don't have the platform. God says, it doesn't matter. I will empower you to accomplish what it is I'm asking you to do. Excuse four, I'm not qualified. And God says, I have gifted you for the job. You may not see the gift in this. You may not understand it. It might be laying dormant, but I'm telling you, it is there. And if you will trust me and follow me and walk with me and discover and deploy that gift, I will do amazing things in your midst. Did God do it? Absolutely he did it. Let me ask you a question. The Holy Spirit who empowered Moses for that moment in time, is he, that the same Holy Spirit that indwells you? Is the same God who's issuing a call upon your life? Would God ever ask you to do something that he's not equipped you to do? Absolutely not. Now, it might require faith. It might require risk on your part. Listen, When Moses, I I could put myself in Moses' shoes and think, you know what? I'm going up against Pharaoh. He's considered God in Egypt. I I can't do this. I I tried on my own, and, and I killed a dude, and I'm already wanted for murder in Egypt. I can't go back there. There's no way, God. And God says, oh, there is a way, and I will make the way if you will surrender yourself to me and follow me. So we've all had these same conversations in our minds, have we not? God says, you yeah, know, I want you to do this, and you're like, Mm-mm, no, no, Lord, nah, think, but you, you need to think twice. So if you're thinking too highly of yourself or you're thinking too lowly, you have this inferiority complex that you're demonstrating that you don't have a renewed mind. Here's what God says. I'm going to give you gifts, talents, and abilities, experiences. I'm going to work all things together for the good of those who love me who have been called according to my purposes I'm going to conform you to the image of Jesus, and I'm going to send you out to go and make disciples. Man, I'm going to challenge you. I'm going to stretch your faith. I'm going to to just ask you to surrender your heart and walk after me. Now, notice here's what he says. Think think adequately about yourself in accordance with what? The measure of faith that God has given you. What, What does he mean by that? Well, the measure of faith is that all of us have a measure of faith that we had God gave us when we received Jesus, right? Remember Paul said in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, this, this gift of faith God gave us and aid us to believe for Jesus, right? So we're all just as righteous as, you know, in God's eyes as each one of us, same as the other. You're just as righteous as Billy Graham or Mother Teresa in the eyes of God because of your faith in Jesus, right? But then there's a the measure of faith in that God has given us giftings. Right. In those giftings, there are what I call degree of giftings. For example, God may have given you the gift of administration. And so you might be a one-talent gift and that you can administrate uh, over your household, you know, budgeting and finances, running the household extremely, extremely well because it is a gifting that God has given to you. If you're a two-talent person, it might be that God's gifted you as an administrator to oversee a small business. Again, you're, you're doing the books and you're doing all, all the things that need to be done administratively. For some of you, you might be a five-talent person where God has given you the gift of administration, but you could, oversee as, you could be the CEO of a Fortune 500 company. All right, so we see this difference in gifting in the parable of the talents. You recall that Jesus said in the parable of the talents, hey, uh, one person was given one talent, one was given two, one was given five. The king went away He said, I want you to use your talents while I am gone because I'm coming back, and when I come back, there's going to be an accountability. I want to know what you've done with the talents that I've given you. And you remember the guy that got two talents, he didn't say when Jesus came back and, and gave, you know asking for accountability, hey, Lord, uh, you didn't give me five talents, and because you didn't give me five talents, I'm so ticked off at you, I just decide not to use anything. All right, even the guy that got one talent didn't use his talent, and he didn't say, well, the reason I didn't use my talent is because you didn't give me five or you didn't give me two. He says, no, 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 uh, I thought you were just, you know, a harsh, harsh, harsh man, and, and I, I didn't want to take a chance risking losing what I got. Now, here's the key. Whether you got one talent, two talents, or five talents, with the two and the five talent, they invested their talents and Jesus says, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Now, I'm going to give you even more talents. I'm going to expand the depth of the measurement of your faith and put you on to even greater things. So here's the point. God doesn't expect you to be a five-talent if you're a one-talent. He doesn't expect you to be a five-talent if you're a two-talent. Or he doesn't expect a five-talent to be a one-talent. God is the one who determines the gifts that we receive. God is the one who determines the measure of faith we receive. He just asks us to be faithful to whatever it is he has given to us. And if you are faithful with it, in your hands, dispensing it out to the needs of others, God will say, you know what, I'm going to give you, I'm going to, you've been faithful of the little things. I'm going to make you ruler over even greater things. I'm going to expand your platform of ministry. And so here's on your outline. The principle is this: um, what God made you to be determines what He intends for you to do. And so whatever you have from the Lord, whatever your ability is, praise God for it. Right? Don't be a big head about it, and feel like you know you you know you're God's gift to the world, and don't be lowly about it. But think about yourself accurately. So then it brings us to the question, where do you belong? In verses 4 and 5, he answers that. Just as each of us is one body, many members. These members don't all have the same function. That's a key. We don't all have what? The same function. We've all been given spiritual gifts. We all have a passion for something that God's instilled in our hearts. We have abilities that God's given to us. We have personality. We have all kinds of experiences, but we don't all have the same function but you're just as though we're as members we don't all have the same function watch this we do all have the same purpose in other words what is the purpose what has Jesus called us to do to continue what he started here on earth to continue what the apostles and the early believers were doing on earth what going and making disciples We all have the same purpose, but our function within that purpose differs between all of us, right? I have a gift of teaching. God has called me to be a pastor. That doesn't mean everybody here has the gift of teaching or is called to be a pastor. We have uh, different functions, but we're all going for the same thing. I want to bring the power of the gospel into the hearts and lives of people so that Jesus can be unleashed and save their soul, and heal them from the inside out, and set them free from their captivity that the evil one has over them. That's my purpose. And so we have gifts and abilities. No one is exactly like you because we all have the same purpose. That means we all have a role to fulfill. Every single one of us have have a role to fulfill within the body of Christ and outside of the law in the body of Christ is your ministry outside the wall is your mission field. Where you work, where you live, where you play, the things that you do, that is your mission field. And so Paul compares the body of Christ with our human body. And here's why. Because each member has a unique and valuable function in the body. You know, your human body is made up of Cells, and tissues, and nerves, and fibers, and organs, and ligaments, and bones, and I mean, all of that is, has a purpose. It is valuable in your body. If something stops functioning in my body, what does it do? It weakens me. Now capture what Paul's heart is here. If the body is not functioning properly, it weakens the church. If you're not fulfilling your unique role that God has given to you, it, it weakens the body of Christ, it weakens the church, it weakens the kingdom. God wants to do amazing things through our church. Do you believe that? you believe that, that God has the power to do that? Well, it's going to require all of us, not some of us, not part of us, all of us fulfilling our unique role in the body of Christ. I can't come to the point and say, well, you don't understand, Pastor. I'm too old now. I understand that as you age, that you, you're, you know, you, you're, what you do in the body of Christ might change because of limitations. But if, as long as you're drawing breath on planet Earth, it means that God is not done with you. Do not ever think that God is done with you because you're a senior citizen. I'm a senior citizen, for crying out loud. Amen. In February, I go on Medicare. How pitiful is that? Listen, without your involvement, our church is weakened. There are things that God wants to do that we cannot do unless you step in and begin functioning the way God has uniquely shaped you. He's got you here for a reason. We're not here to compete against one another. We are here to complement one another. The reason Paul says the body of Christ is like a human body is because we need one another. We are interdependent upon one another. And God has formulated this body of Christ for a unique purpose and calling for such a time as this. And so as you are serving alongside with others and you're, you're getting to know God in deeper ways and, and you're not feeling alone and you're not feeling isolated, you're feeling a part of what it is God is doing through this body of believers and that's the way God has designed us we all need each other I need your gifts you need my gifts we need each other's gifts which brings me to the last question we're going to be unpacking these uh, in the weeks to come but what is it that I am supposed to do and so he began listing um, several different gifts now when it comes to spiritual gifts I lived in the era of ignorance for a long time I was a believer in Christ got saved when I was 15 years old I was raised in church, was raised in a Christian home, and so I was ignorant when it came to spiritual gifts. I never heard anybody teach about it, never heard anybody talk about it. I didn't even know they existed, right, for a long, long time. And then I moved from the era of ignorance into the era of confusion because then when I started hearing people talk about spiritual gifts, and then people were arguing about them, like, "Well, what does this mean? And what does that mean? And is this for the age of the apostles only? And it, you know, it died out when they left, you know, when the canon the Bible was completed, and now these gifts are no longer needed." And so there's battles going back and forth. And then I moved to an era of where I was discovering, because in the area of spiritual gifts is where I did my doctorate. And at the time I was working on my doctorate, there was very little written about spiritual gifts. And so I had to dig deep. You know, when you do a dissertation, you have to have, uh, you know, many, many pages of biography. And I was struggling trying to find enough writings that I could fill my biography in order to do my dissertation. And so, um, you know, I I did the dissertation. And um, so now I'm sitting among professors, right? So when you do a doctorate, you have to write a dissertation that goes back and forth, you know, they make, you make corrections and this, and that, and the other, and it gets back and forth, you know, five or six times. Finally, when it gets approved, now I have to go through oral exams. Oral exams means for two hours, I sat in a room with professors all around this table. And for two hours, for the first hour, they grilled me on all of my, um, my doctoral studies and all the books that I read, and everything was free game, right? So they could ask me any question that, that I'd studied for two years, um, and then the second, you have to defend your project. Now, here's the problem. See, there's a, even among professors, there was a bit of controversy about which spiritual gifts are still legit today and which are not. And I added a couple that I pulled out of the Old Testament, which caused them to go, hmm, well, wait a minute. Well, so they got so fixated on that and, you know, <laughs> going back and forth. Um, like, I, I felt like i have been in there for three hours with these guys as we're, you know, they're asking me questions and, you know trying to making me defend why I put this in there and why and and all of a sudden I look up you know and, and my time's up and I'm like whoo so so I walk out of the room they they cast the vote right are they approving this or not and so obviously that happened I got approved um so for me now it, it, be, I, it moved me into an, an era of empowerment how do I discover how do I help others discover to develop and to deploy their spiritual giftedness and in the in the, the lives of every believer as God uses them. So I've given you a definition of a spiritual gift as I define it. It is a notion, it's a supernatural enablement. It's not natural. This doesn't come natural to you. It's supernatural. It's by the Holy Spirit, given by the Holy Spirit to how many believers? Every believer at what time? At conversion. Who determine your spiritual gifts? Jesus did, right? The Holy Spirit did. You didn't determine. I didn't say, I couldn't argue with the Holy Spirit. Well, Holy Spirit, I, you know, I, I I want this gift over here. I don't like this when you gave me, I want, now what's going to happen to some of you, you're going to say, uh, your spiritual gift's going to be like, it might be like preaching. And you're thinking, I'm not a preacher. I'm not, I'm not going up there and standing up there and preaching. Just because you have that gift does not mean it has to be used in that way only. There's multiple ways the gifts can be used as we're going to discover as we go through this. And it, it says to be used in a, to what? To minister to others and therefore build up the body of Christ. And so I want you to know that there are different gifts. There's one list here. There's a list get, if given in 1 Corinthians 12 and Ephesians 4 and 1 Peter 4. We're going to look at all the gifts uh, over the next three weeks and unpack your, your shape, your unique shape as we go through this and we will get every one of them. I do want you to know, spiritual gifts are not the same as natural talents, although God may couple your natural talent with a spiritual gift, and there's a reason for that, and we'll get into that later. Spiritual gifts are not the same as the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit has to do with your character. Spiritual giftedness has to do with service, right? You're serving others, and thus building up the body of Christ, and these gifts are strong, Are given to strengthen the church. So we want you to practice on discovering, developing, and deploying your unique shape, which requires of you what? Some homework. Uh, That you're not going to have any this week, but starting next week, you're going to have some homework as we go through this this paper. So I want you to look at in closing that, you know, this is just something we both pull out of the air when we use the word shape. Spiritual gift your heart, what you're passionate about, your abilities, your personality, and your experiences. So let's close with this. Let's look at the life of the Apostle Paul. He's the writer of the book of Romans, right? He talks about these specific gifts, what I call motivational gifts, uh, in this passage that we'll look at next week. So what was Paul's unique shape? What were his spiritual gifts? Second Timothy 1.11 says, And of this gospel I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, and a teacher. Preacher, apostle, and teacher. Those were Paul's three gifts. All right, so that was a part of his unique shape. I mean, um, let me just say this. It is easier to discover your gift through ministry than to discover your ministry through a gift. Like most people want to say, well, I just want to discover what my gift is. and Well, you know what? I say that to say this, you might say, well, here's my shape, I plug into ministry, and you've been in it for a little while, and you think, ah, this just isn't me, right? So we'd rather have you unplug and plug into where it is God's shaped you than to be miserable over here, because now you're not motivated, you're not going to do a a good job, but if you're over here, you're more motivated, it comes more natural to you, and you're going to be far more effective than if you're... Serving where you're, you're, you're not shaped or gifted. And so when Paul says, you know, I was appointed a preacher, apostle, a teacher. I mean, Paul was what? He was a church planter. And it was a church planter because it fell in alignment with his giftedness, his heart. Here's what he said in Romans 15, 20. My constant ambition has been to preach the gospel where the name of Christ was previously unknown and to avoid building on another man's foundation. See, this is the church planter passion God gave him. Right now in our state, we have several church planters, multiple church planters. And see, the reason they're doing that is because that's the passion God gave them. They don't want to build on somebody else's foundation. They don't want to come into an existing church. They believe God has gifted them and has given them the passion to begin something brand new in an area that where there are unreached people. This is the heart of Paul. Galatians 2.8, for God, who is at work in the ministry of Peter as an apostle to the Jews, was also at work in my ministry as an apostle to the Gentiles. Remember what Paul would do? He would go into a town, go into the synagogue, share Jesus. Few would accept, many would reject. Then he would go into the marketplace and he would begin sharing Jesus because he felt like God called him to reach the the Gentiles, to take the gospel to the Gentiles, everybody who's non-Jew, right? And so God's God just begins to change your desires and your passions. Some of you are passionate about children. Some of you are passionate about youth. Some of you are passionate about the homeless or human trafficking or addicts or mental illness, the hungry. I mean, there's a thousand different ways God gives you passions that helps you understand what it is God's made you to be that helps determine what you need to do. Abilities. What were Paul's abilities? Paul went to see, this is Scripture, Paul went to see them and stayed and worked with them because he earned his living by making tents, just as they did. He debated in the synagogues every Sabbath, trying to convince both Jews and Gentiles, Acts 18. So he was a tent maker by trade. It was a ability. He was a debater. He was an apologist, which simply means he was a defender of the faith. Paul had a brilliant mind. He had been schooled in philosophy and all kinds of uh, of areas of, of educational world in that day and time. And he could debate with the best of them. And so that's what he did. He would go and he, he would sit in the marketplace. And sometimes he would go in special areas where, you know, um, the, he knew that the philosophers were there. And they're debating about all the lofty things of life. And Paul would say, well, oh, that's one, fine and wonderful. And he would even quote the, some of those philosophers. And then he would begin bringing him into the realm of the gospel. What was his personality? Here's what Galatians 1, 13 through 14 says. For you've heard of my past. I persecuted the church with fanatical zeal and did my best to destroy it. I was ahead of most of my contemporaries in the Jewish religion and had a boundless enthusiasm. Fanatical zeal, boundless enthusiasm. That, in on the personality scale, is a full-blown cleric, a lion. He's a leader. I mean, Paul, just like he was headstrong. And some of you are that way. God has designed you You are the lions of the world, and it's like your way or the highway, right? It's just you're going to get it done. You may hurt feelings along the way. That's really not your worry or concern is that you see the big picture. You got the vision, and you're going for it. That was the Apostle Paul. Now, some of you are, you know, you're more sanguine, right? You're more like what I call otters. You guys are like a party waiting to happen. Like everything you do has got to be fun. If it's not fun, we're not going to do it, so we got to have fun. And while we're doing, some of you're melancholy. I call the golden retrievers, and and you're a little more in, you know, inward bound, a um, little more introvert than extrovert. You know, clerics are going to be extroverts on the, this end of the scale. Uh, melancholies are like almost introvert on this end of the scale, but not quite. But you you have uh, fewer friends. Like otters, have, everybody's their friend. Like they walk in a room, hey, how you doing? How you doing? How you doing? You walk in the room, and you just kind of back up in a corner and wait for people to come to you at a party, right? Because you don't know these people, and the otters, they don't care if they know you or not. You're my friend, right? Uh, Those are melancholy. Fewer friends, but deeper friendships, deeper relationships. And so when you get hurt, somebody betrays you, man, you are wounded very, very deeply. Otters are like, so what? We're going on with life. And those of you who are... (laughs) The deep introverts, the phlegmatics, you are the beavers of the world. Uh, you are the people who cannot make decisions. You've got to research everything. You've got to have all your ducks in a row all laid out. Uh, so for example, if you went to buy a car, you would say, well, I want to see, the, you know, the, the car facts on this. I want to see, the, you know, the maintenance schedule. And, and you'd, you'd research that thing to death, and you'd go, you know, research all the different kind of cars and what's going to get me the best this and the best that. Finally, one day you will come to a decision. You take an otter out onto the car lot and the only thing they care and the only thing they'll ask you is, do I look good in this car? Do I look good in this car? So God's giving you a unique personality What filters into, for example, if somebody's a greeter at our doors, would I want somebody who's an extreme introvert out there because when people come up, they're going to go, "Hi, right, welcome here. We're glad you're here. All right? because it's just not your personality. You don't have to feel bad about this. This is what I want you to understand. You don't have to feel bad about it. It is your personality. It's God's unique shape for you. So be who God created you to be. What about experiences, Paul's spiritual experiences? He watched Stephen's being stoned to death in Acts 8, conversion on the road to Damascus, three years maturing in the desert of Arabia, in Galatians 1, special vision from God. Remember, he got a vision of heaven. I mean, it's a pretty awesome spiritual experiences. What about his, his painful experiences? 2 Corinthians 11, I've been in prison more times, near death often, been whipped five times with 39 lashes with the Jews, by the Jews, and three times by the Romans. Once stoned, I've been in three shipwrecks, once 24 hours in the water. In my travels, I've been in danger from floods, robbers, enemies, wild animals, and false friends. I've served long hours without sleep or food or shelter or even clothing. Second Corinthians 12, to keep me from becoming conceited because of the great revelations. Remember this vision of heaven. I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan to torment me. I mean, that's some pretty painful experiences, and many of you have some very painful experiences that God can use and leverage as a platform for ministry. Educational experiences. I received my training at the feet of Gamaliel, and I was schooled in the strictest observance of our Father's law. What about his ministry experiences? Just read the book of Acts. God uniquely shaped Paul for what he designed him to be and to do. God has uniquely shaped you and designed you for what he needs you to be and to do. I just want to help you to discover that, to develop it, and put it into practice. When we are all functioning in our unique shape, then the body of Christ is built up. It is strengthened. Our walk with God goes deeper and deeper and deeper We trust God in more profound ways and we're willing to allow the Lord to use us in ways that we never thought we would. Remember a few weeks ago I gave you a dime and I said, I believe in you? I do. I believe that God wants to use you in this body of Christ and outside the walls of this church because the power of the gospel has never been diminished. Let's bow our heads.